like a locomotive, sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song and then my song's gon' Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and this is officially take two. We always joke and maybe like humble brag a little bit about how we do this show straight to tape, but I, I totally flubbed the intro a couple of minutes ago. So this Double is our clutch. second attempt. Double clutch. Yep, yep, yep. My friend, as we're starting to record, by the way, yeah. I just got a tweet indicating that Oscar Piastri, the McLaren driver, has officially, and this wasn't even in the outline for the show, but it's officially inked a two-year extension with McLaren that will take him right through the back of 2026. Immediate reactions, my friend. What do you think of that deal? Yeah, I think that's a great bit of business by uh, Zach Brown and McLaren. I mean, Oscar, I think, is uh, proving to be a, a pretty young, hot uh, prospect here. Well, I, I think he's more than a prospect. I think he's uh, proven that, uh, that that he's a you know, very, very talented young Formula One driver. And, you know, why not? Why, why not build this uh, team around the aged Lando Norris is 23 years old <laughs> and uh, Oscar Piastri. I mean, keep those guys under contract for a couple of years. I think it's a wonderful bit of business. Too bad Oscar didn't have as many of the new bits on his car in Singapore last weekend. He'll get his turn. But I mean, if, if Lando was anything to go by, he must just be salivating and saying to the team, get me my upgrades. I want to do what Lando's doing. So great stuff. Yeah, I love it. And just moments ago, Oscar Piastri tweeted the following he says stress-free contract announcement like always with a with a winky face <laughs> to which to which alpine f1 team has responded with that meme of homer simpson backing into the hedge <laughs> dude pure pure hilarity my gosh dude that we've got funny. so much to get to today uh i think uh big shout out to our friends over at the race weekend to magnus and the entire team collection two is at the printers now if you're interested of course you can always save 10 percent by using the skidaria pod coupon code big shout out to tease and the entire team at racing exclusives of course they are the group that furnished us with the phenomenal prize that will be awarded to the winner of our f1 fantasy league which uh, we'll be wrapping up in just a couple of months here unfortunately daily and i just moments ago tried to get the update because we wanted to share the latest standings. Fortunately, the site is down. And before daily, I kick it over to you to kind of recap the championship standings. Uh, I think it's probably worth acknowledging that Red Bull's 15 consecutive wins, of course, that streak, which is a record, came to a screeching halt, no pun intended, in Singapore. They went 301 days without, without another team winning a Grand Prix, which of course sets up Amazing. the championship standings pretty well. That that is amazing. That is a, an incredible stat. When I saw you throw that into the show outline, it was really one of those you know sit back and kind of let it sink in moment. I was just like, that is absolutely uh, incredible and very impressive. Okay, yeah. So the uh, the st- championship standings over the twenty twenty three Formula World. Sorry, World Championship. You need some coffee here. Max Verstappen, 374 points, leading his Red Bull teammate Sergio Perez is 223. Lewis Hamilton, third in the championship with 180. Fernando Alonso is fourth with 170. Carlos Sainz is fifth of the World Championship with 142 points. On the constructor side of the championship, Red Bull blazing 
away with 597 points. Way back in the rearview mirror in second in the constructors is Mercedes with 289, Ferrari with 265. That's a tight little battle brewing there. That might be one to watch between Mercedes and Ferrari down the stretch run here. So Ferrari 265, Aston Martin 217, and McLaren 139 points. Somewhat uh, deceptive because basically all of those points have come just before and after the summer break. So certainly their season has uh, turned around but uh, they would, yeah, dropped a lot of points at the beginning of the season, but uh, really, really uh, good to see from uh, McLaren the last uh, several races. So first bit of news, and this is from Aloba to F1. It's now a deleted treat, but a tweet, but apparently Lance Stroll will not race at the Japanese Grand Prix at Suzuka this weekend, as confirmed by Aston Martin. The aftermath of his severe accident Saturday qualified in Singapore has forced this decision to be made. That was a pretty hefty shunt that Lance had right uh, at the end of that uh, that that lap in qualifying, he went into the barriers hard. I mean, it was great to see that uh, that that he was okay and obviously moving right away. But that was a heavy impact. I mean, the car basically disintegrated as it's supposed to in the immediate aftermath of that. But even the tethers on the front wheels came off. So I mean, those are meant to keep them in place. So that's just an indication of how much force went into that impact. Do you know, Mark, did you see any reports how many G's Lance sustained in, in that crash? I haven't yet. Yeah. I'm surprised that that data hasn't been posted because I'm sure yeah, the telemetry right? somewhere. On yeah. this tweet, um, it's interesting because a couple of days ago, it was the internet was just kind of alive with this topic that Lance isn't going to race. And I think the general consensus was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like we all saw that impact in qualifying. It's not like they had a, a two week break before you go to Japan. Like it's a quick turnaround from Singapore uh, to, to Japan. Like it's a week. Uh, apparently that has now been debunked and he will be competing, but there's been no kind of official confirmation. So there's kind of this brewing debate about whether he's going to be there. And then for, furthermore, whether he should be there, which was not really unlike what we saw at the season opener in Bahrain. It was like, is he ready? Should he be there? Uh, I just think in a circumstance like this, where, you know, when he fell off the bike, it was, it was pretty clear medically what had happened. It was broken bones. And you could look at how they're healing and how the tendons are and how the muscles are and how the the tissue is with an impact like this, like so much of that is, um, is kind of a brain injury potentially and a concussion and the, the reverberations and the impact of that. So if he's not in Japan this weekend, I totally get it. I totally get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to really take into account, uh, you know, the driver's health and their safety. But it, it was funny when you said that. It's like revisiting. I feel like we had this conversation six months ago, right? After he had that cycling accident just before the start of the season. But when it, when it comes to things less obvious than, uh, than a broken boat, especially when it comes to like concussions and like... Um, Unlike other sports, I mean, you see like in the NFL, um, you know, like somebody takes a heavy hit, they immediately go into the blue tent, they go through the concussion protocol. I mean, Formula One's a little bit different. Uh, I mean, I know that they'll they have like medical staff and personnel and, and things like that. But if somebody has like a heavy shunt, there's no like immediate thing where they go to the medical facility right away, unless it's a massive, massive crash. And usually, you know, that that's pretty scary. And somebody's getting in a helicopter or an ambulance to go off to the, the you know, the near hospital but it's it kind of like asks the question don't you think like hands devices and halos etc notwithstanding makes you wonder if they should have some sort of like lower the bar especially when it comes to um evaluating head injuries like at the track right 
Daily, that's that's such a great point. And I, I love that that reference that you made to the NFL. And I don't want to give the NFL any credit here because I think their hands were basically forced by the players were, association yeah. and by by the media yep. and a particular motion picture. But I mean, at least they have a concussion protocol and maybe the FIA does and we just don't know about it. Yep. But if they do, I think that's probably something that they should be they should be communicating. And I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've had a long history of concussions throughout my entire life. And when I suffer one, I am not... I should not be driving to the corner store, let alone getting in a Formula One car. And I've never had an impact similar to what Lance Stroll had last weekend in Singapore. And I just, I don't, and again, I'm not a doctor, but I just, I don't understand how somebody could be medically cleared to race within a week. And of course, I'm sure the FIA has their protocols, but Mm -hmm. I'd love to learn more. And maybe you and I can make an effort to kind of dig into this for future episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go on to the next one. This one comes uh, via Tom Warren. And uh, Xbox is now the official console partner of the F1 Team Alpine. Xbox logo will be part of the BWT Alpine F1 car alongside Microsoft's existing sponsorship logo. Mark, do we have an official sponsor, like console partner? I mean, I'm a PlayStation guy. I don't are you a PlayStation guy Xbox where can, sure, can I tell please. you a funny story so emotionally emotionally I am a hundred percent a PlayStation guy I've never owned a PlayStation <laughs> I somehow end up with every single generation of Xbox and then oh, never really? use them but I desperately want desperately want that shiny white PlayStation 5 and I, by the way I don't know if you noticed this week but there was apparently a massive massive leak from a court trial um, that basically revealed Microsoft's entire roadmap for the next five Ooh. years of the Xbox so like we've got some really juicy details so make sure to check that out but I like to think I'm a PlayStation guy and I would love to add a PlayStation 5 to to the collection I'm, I'm guessing are you, have you got a PlayStation 5 I, or PlayStation like 4? A, I've got a PlayStation 4 it seems to be hanging in there I, I, I just Okay. I want a PlayStation 5 number one it's the latest thing and they look amazing but you know I, I just um, at the same time when like the cost of living is through the roof I'm just like I don't know if I should really spend the money on a PS5 when the, the PS4 is doing such a yeah, good job it's you. still such a really good, I hear good you. console and you know actually before we, we jumped into the studio I was upstairs playing a little Gran Turismo which is still you know I've had like a couple of different versions of that over the year that still has to be my my favorite game of all time you know you know i've, I've loved the f1 games and other racing sims but uh, gran turismo is just a, a fantastic game it really is so we officially proclaimed a few weeks ago that mary browns is the official chicken sandwich yes. of the show without their <laughs> endorsement we will officially announce that sony playstation is the official gaming console of this podcast again without any any authorization. My friend, I realized the next clip I put up here, the next stat doesn't make any sense because I didn't title it. So I'm going to quickly, I'm going to quickly explain this I love to it you. Sometimes when I, 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 I scroll through my Twitter timeline, you come across these things. It's like the, these accounts, it's like blank without context. You get like this really bizarre picture that makes no sense. It's like, what am I really looking at here? And then you find out it's something either really funny or really benign or something like that. I'm just like, I looked at this. I'm like, this is Formula One without context. I'm like, I I know this is something, yeah, totally but is. I'm not totally sure what it is. it is. So I'm glad that you're you're going to quarterback this part of the show. 
So this one is, and again, here I am rating Reddit for the content for our <laughs> show, but this, uh, this, this uh, story, not even the story, but this statistic comes courtesy of KarmaBot on, on Reddit, on the Reddit subreddit for F1, but it is Norris, Lando Norris Q3 appearances since 2021. And what it speaks to is that in the last three seasons, inclusive of, inclusive of 2023, Lando Norris has made it to Q3 in 81% of the Formula One Grand Prix pre-race weekends. The comp here is Sergio Perez, who in that far superior Red Bull has only qualified for Q3 80% of the time. So interesting comparison. Lando Norris in that developing, that incrementally developed McLaren has gone to Q3 81% of the time versus Sergio Perez 80%. Now this is where it gets interesting. Lando Norris's teammates during that same period, which is Ricardo slash Piastri, have qualified for Q3 just 49% of the time. So in the same car, 49 versus 81, and then Sergio Perez versus Max Verstappen. The only thing surprising about this Max Verstappen number is that it's as low as it is. Max Verstappen over the last three seasons, inclusive of 2023, has qualified for Q3 95% of the time. So Lando Norris clearly running circles around his teammates. And then one final, since we're just like giving so much love to Lando Norris tonight, but this stat comes from Philip Horton on Twitter. Lando Norris has been the third highest point scorer with 85 championship points since McLaren introduced its upgrade package in Austria behind only the Red Bull drivers, which of course is a remarkable mid-season turnaround for both uh, for both he and yeah, his that, team. Yeah, that is an incredible stat. And I was just kind of thinking that I wouldn't say that Lando is an underrated Formula One driver. I, I think that he gets all the cred that he deserves, but perhaps that uh, just because he's not driving a Red Bull or maybe a Mercedes or even a Ferrari... And I make that kind of sound like a uh, like an incrementally decreasing list. I mean, it is, but not really. But just uh, the, the fact that that the the McLaren has kind of been a step behind the top three, and obviously Red Bull's been a step or two ahead of everyone else. I just feel that maybe he's underreported. Maybe he just doesn't get the the coverage or the love that he deserves for the work that uh, he's put in. That that's that's an impressive uh, total. Daily, I've got a couple, and I know this isn't in the outline, but I figure we can squeeze yeah. these in before the break. But I've got a couple of quick mailbag sure. questions, and then an interesting question okay. for you. So we haven't done this in a while, so apologies to everybody. But this uh, Twitter question comes from listener James Canteen, and he writes, Hey, guys, love the show, loyal listener and fellow Canuck, but also miss Tim and his insights. Can you let us know what happened to him and if he's ever coming back. So I'll, I'll kick that one over to you, Mr. Do we Daly. really want to like talk about the nastiness and the unpleasantness that happened before we kicked it? The, the falling, falling out, out? The drama yeah, from yeah, the offseason? Like, it's like the Kardashians, but like in like Formula One. No, it's it's nothing like that. We still talk to Tim all the time. It's just that Tim moved platforms from TSN to the Steve Dangle Podcast Network or whatever it is. So he's doing a great job over there. We've been on his new podcast a couple of times. It's just that there is some things around there that it's kind of like a one-way kind of like traffic thing that kind of prevents him, limits him to sort of participating like on a regular basis like uh, he did. And he's still around. If you want to check out his show, it's called Nailing the Apex and Tim's crushing it like uh, he always did. But uh, yeah, no, uh, unfortunately uh, we can't connect uh, like we did, but it's just, you know, the lawyers got in the way. It's not like uh, we're, we, we've been fighting all that. It kind of teed it up to be a little bit kind of juicy that there was a, there was a bit of beef between 
us, but uh, but not really. Yeah, no beef there, <laughs> trust me. Uh, and I would highly recommend you check out his show. In fact, one of my friends was uh, sharing with me that on his most recent show, he did a really great job of breaking down the moments that led to that stroll crash in in qualifying and in a way that you and I probably wouldn't have been capable of doing. Uh, the next one here, again, another Twitter question, uh, which I love. Hi, Mark. Greg here with a couple of things. One, can I RSVP for your Vegas party? Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody has yet. So you are officially the first. Uh, number two, I'm on my way to the Qatar GP. Nice. Humble brag. Need a race correspondent, LMAO. Um, all in. Got a great deal. Vegas and Miami are double, triple that price all in. I'm never going to a U.S. race again. Having been to Austin and Detroit back in the day, uh, he has another point here. The Alonzo Stroll teammate battle is one of the most lopsided ones in the history of F1. Second only maybe to Senna and Andretti. Mm. Uh, number three is likely Ivan Capelli, Capelli versus Yarno Truly. You guys should highlight how big a blowout it is relative to past teammate battles. Context is everything, and Alonzo Stroll is one for the ages. You're under-reporting how one-sided it is. Okay, maybe Senna Dumfries was as bad. So one, uh, we look forward to seeing you on the, the night of November the 19th. Number two, enjoy the race in Doha. Um, but three, daily, your response to the, uh, I shouldn't say criticism, but maybe the observation that we've been too fair uh, towards Lance Stroll and his teammate battle with the far superior Fernando well, I th- Alonso. I think that uh, comp that uh, Greg made there with Senna versus Michael Andretti, I think that's a great one because, you know, th- this is going back like quite quite a ways. So, you know, this we're going back to when was Michael racing for... Um, for for McLaren, that would have been 93, 94. Yeah, 93, right. Yeah, 1993. So he came over from IndyCar. Obviously, you got the name, right? Andretti. Doesn't matter if you're racing an IndyCar Formula One. I mean, you're you're racing royalty. You're going to McLaren at a time. What what did, did they what did they have that year? Did they have Peugeot engines in that car? Maybe you can pull that up uh, really quickly. No. no Ninety three, they were running the weird combination. They had a Ford. Oh yeah, I think yeah. I think it was a Cosworth engine. Yeah, because they got yeah. like after the Honda years, they kind of bounced around with some different engine manufacturers for for a while. Doesn't matter. The point is, and Greg's really pointed that out nicely that you have Senna, who was in his prime, already you know multiple world champion at this time, and and Michael. <laughs> really underperformed and that's kind of like understating it i mean you could really make the the, the case that uh, that he flopped as a driver in, in in formula one and then um i don't know about the stats uh, with with johnny dumfries there as well but uh, you know that's that's going back as well that was uh, another case too what was there? there there was something with johnny dumfries that kind of really limited his potential i don't know off the top of my head if it was an accident that he had that he never really recovered from like properly and Let's just remember that back in the day, less safety features, medicine wasn't advanced, and sometimes people had really bad injuries and they came back from them. They just weren't quite the same. I mean, Johnny Herberts, I think, um, had some success in Formula One, but he had that horrible crash at Brands Hatch in the, what was it, the late 80s, broke both his legs. You can find a copy of that crash or see that crash on uh, YouTube. So it was pretty, pretty horrible, but uh, Johnny Dumfries was another one. So I don't remember that comp uh, exactly, but uh, I think that uh, comparison with uh, with Senna Andretti, compare that to Lance versus Fernando, yeah. because, um, you know, I... Sometimes we we cut Lance a bit of slack, but um, you know, I, I think we've been pretty 
you know, we've tried to be in our own way. Maybe it doesn't come across as intended, but we we have talked to you know several times at just how many points Fernando's scoring compared to Lance, and just how you know he's just not pulling the weight. And when I've, I still got the constructors championship uh, in front of me here. I mean, to see Aston Martin go from second down to fourth. Of course, they've had some struggles, but you know, maybe you're still in between Ferrari and Mercedes. You probably still would have slipped down the championship, but I. I mean, Lance just hasn't brought home anywhere close to the sorts of points he should have this year. I mean, that that's that's just not up for for debate. That's just that's just fact, right? I think if I think if we'd received this comment six months ago, I think it probably would have been more accurate. But I, I feel, and maybe we haven't, maybe we haven't reinforced the delta, the gap between the two drivers enough. But I think we've openly criticized Lance yep. Stroll, and I, I think we were a little bit softer this past weekend because we wanted to be sensitive to yep. the crash. But ultimately, I, I think we've eaten him quite a lot this year. Um, I just kind well, of you put your place in Lance Stroll Island up for for sale, didn't you, or at least up for rents? If it wasn't for interest <laughs> rates, it would have been sold. But nobody wants to lock into a 7% mortgage, That's my friend. Fair, um, fair. Just recapping that 93 championship, because I, I think it's fun to provide a little yeah. bit of context. As a reminder, Andretti won the Indy title in 91, finished second in 92. And then he made this big leap over to um, over to Formula One for the 93 season. He signed with McLaren that was rocking a Ford engine. He was partnered with Senna. The curious thing about that season is Senna was doing everything in his power to escape the Ron Dennis-led McLaren team and was desperate to join Williams, which was being powered by that super great Renault power unit. That didn't transpire. That said, Elaine Prost won the championship on 99 points. Ayrton Senna finished second on 73 points. He had four retirements, but he also had five race wins that season. The comp is Michael Andretti, who was basically done uh, by the time they got to Italy. That was his sole podium. He had, I think, seven retirements that year and 14 races. So I think he failed to finish half of his races. He finished on seventh points. He only had uh, three points finishes that year. And then his championship, his, his Formula One career was done. And I think one of the biggest criticisms I remember this at the time because I watched a lot of F1 was he was this big American star that came over and he wouldn't commit to living in Europe. So he was basically commuting over to Europe because almost all the races back then, um, minus I think Mexico and uh, Brazil and Canada, um, were in Europe. Uh, he wouldn't commit to living in Europe and he was heavily criticized for it. So, so yeah, I think that's a fair comment. My friend, the mm-hmm. last one, and we'll do this before we head to break because I'm super curious to hear about this, but um, this one comes from James and Jen says, Hey, I was listening to a Hamil- one of Hamilton's favorite podcasts the other day, the no dunks podcast on the athletic. And they were talking about an interesting subject. And I thought I would, pique your interest and see what your thoughts are. They were talking about the fact that it's now becoming common for people flying on commercial airlines to bring small gift bags for the flight attendants. The thought is that you'll get superior service by gifting them something small when you come on the flight. What is your thought about this? Would you do this? And what do you think about the ever-increasing tipping culture that we're struggling with in North America? So Daly, I guess two thoughts there, and thanks for the message, James. One is, would you ever, if you were flying on an airline, bring a small gift bag or a gift for the flight attendant? And two, what is your thought on the... And I think for people in Asia and in North America and the Middle East, this may come across as a little bit unusual, but what is your thought about the ever-increasing tipping culture like coffee shop, 
donair shop, sandwich shop in North America. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind tipping in certain situations. Like, I, I kind of find it weird, like, if you're going through, like, a drive through or even if you go up to a counter to order a drink or a sandwich or something like that to offer a tip. I mean, it depends. Sometimes somebody comes up, does an amazing job, and they just knock it out of the park, and, you know, they, you know they're super friendly. And so, I mean, sometimes I'll throw them, like, a, a little bit of, uh, you know, a tip there. Sometimes, you know, like, doing, like, the takeout, Little that daily yeah, I mean, cheddar. That yeah, daily it's cheddar. very little in this day and age. But then also like things when it comes to takeout, like sometimes, I don't know, I feel awkward about it and I feel kind of like guilty if I don't, but I'm just like, you know, it's just like, you just took my order and then like made my dinner. Like the one, like I always tip Caesar, my barber, you know, he doesn't, he, he doesn't have a lot to work with and he does his best and he's, a, and everybody <laughs> else, like, you know, he does an amazing job. So, I mean, you know, anything that if I don't look great, that's not on him. That's, that's purely on me. So I always tip my barber that one. Like if you go to like, if I go out to a restaurant or to a bar, like like the wait staff. I mean, if you're sitting in a restaurant for like two hours and you're ordering food and drinks and dessert, et cetera, I mean, sure, those people are hustling around all all night, no problem. Um, the the flight attendant things that that's interesting. Like the last flight I took is when I went to go and visit, or we, the family, went to go visit my wife's brother-in-law in Ottawa last year. So he got us a box of gourmet donuts to give to the uh, the, the cabin crew, and. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So this is a thing. This, this is, is legitimately, this is le a, legitimately thing. a thing. And, you know, it was interesting because we gave them, and there's this, uh, what's the name? This is uh, back in, I think Susie Q, I think is the, like the, the donut shop. And we had them, they were yeah, like, yeah. I mean, oh my God, they were just amazing. So we, we brought a, he gave us a box. Did they let you fly the plane at that point? Everything but. I mean, they were they were super nice <laughs> to us and they were bringing snacks for my son because we did this thing where we came back like on separate flights because my wife and my daughter had to come back because she had a summer camp thing that she needed to go to. So they came home a couple of days early. So my oldest son and I, we came back a couple of days later. So we had this big box and they they were genuinely appreciative of it. And it wasn't just like, oh my God, they didn't expect it either. But uh, I thought in that case, it was it was something I wouldn't have thought of, but uh, it went over really good on on uh, on both sides. And they spoiled my son, uh, especially. I, you know, I didn't really expect or, or want to have anything uh, else, but uh, they, they really, they, they, they did take care of us. It was, it was noticeable. So it was cool. So, so daily that this is timely because I was in my local donor shop recently and you know, a couple of years I go in and it's just take yeah. Right. And like, I, I, I get the pin pad, they slide the pin pad over. It's like, would you like to leave a tip? It's like 10, 12, 15%. And when I was in there the other day, the lowest tip that you could offer was 25%. Oh, wow. So like 25% on like a $12 donor, which by the way, a couple of years ago was $8. <laughs> um, yep. and I just like, to me, like, I, I find it increasingly uncomfortable because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's like, it's the coffee shop, it's takeout. And, and it's funny because like, yeah, it took the guy, the guy was nice, but it took him 30 seconds to make my donor. But you know, I go to, I go to Home Depot and some guy that's probably making a similar hourly wage will like sweat and grind to fill my trailer full of drywall. <laughs> and I don't even have the opportunity to offer this guy a tip, right? Like, so I think from a restaurant industry perspective, like I really wish we could just get to a place where build it into the price and pay these people, pay these people a, a better wage. Like just don't pass it on to the customers. It's uncomfortable. And like, for sure, like I'm sure there's some instances where people like, hey, the service was so great, but I just, I think it's, I think it's just, it's disproportionately, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right word. Like 
I really want to be able to offer that guy at Home Depot something who really went above mm-hmm. and beyond and grinded and sweated to load my trailer with home, with like drywall. But I go to the sandwich shop and the guy spends 30 seconds slapping together a donair and there's an expectation that I'm going to offer up $2.50. Now that said, I always tip because I just feel so guilty if yeah. I don't. I always do. And this is probably one of the reasons why they can can do away with it. But I would prefer just to see, hey, if you're going to do it, just pass on the cost and the price and just pay your people yeah, exactly. better. Like that's what I would really yeah. like to see. But that said, yeah, yep. great question. I was just going to uh, say my that. My friend, I, I'll kick it back. I don't yeah, all please. the time, but I do most of the time. And that's probably why my wife yells at me because <laughs> it's just like, you said you were just going to cost that much. It's just like, it is just like, oh, you know, I, you know, times are tough and, you know, they're working hard and, you know, I feel bad. And it's just like, it's just like, it's just a couple of bucks and, you know, it just, it kind of helps brighten somebody's day and, you know, so. Oh, dude, dude. So this is a funny story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and people were like, isn't this an F1 show? <laughs> but I was at the barber and I took my son to the barber and best barber in town. They look after us. They do a really good job. But I accidentally, without thinking, tip them $50 instead of 15. <laughs> and I remember like when the pin pad was coming up, like, I'm like, that's a lot of money, but I'm not going to ask. I might just not come back again. And they were like really grateful. And they gave my son like six, like pot, like um, lollipops. And it was only re- later when I looked at the re- the receipt, I'm like that $15 tip became 50. Never said anything. And I wasn't about to go back and ask for it, but, but yeah, so enjoy your $35 <laughs> tip, Mr. Barber. Well, that's why you look amazing because uh, they did a very good job. Well, All right, why don't we just uh, jump into a break here and we'll actually talk about some Formula One news. We'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So I'm just looking here. It says quick revisit of Singapore GP topics. But above that, it says question of the week for daily from Hamilton. Was that the the previous one, the tipping one? Or is there, is, is, it yes. was that one? Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah, it was the I, tipping one. Sure. I never in a million years would have imagined that you. So I, I wasn't I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but I thought you were going to be like, oh, that's that's a novel concept that people are gifting people on airplanes. Like you do it like you're like, yeah, of course. Like, of course, I take a box of donuts. <laughs> luxury donuts for the uh, cabin crew. So I'm like, okay, yeah, that was I interesting. Just, so I, I learned a lot I, about I have no idea how much that uh, box of dozen donuts uh, from Susie Q cost my brother-in-law, but I'm sure it, was, uh, it, it wasn't cheap. Uh, and they're probably worth twice as much now because inflation. All right. So let's uh, talk quickly about the recent upgrades the team brought, uh, brought to Singapore. It's interesting, right? This far into the season yeah. that that team's... It's, it's really yeah, crazy. Yeah, right? 
In fact, Aston Martin announced a couple of days ago that they expect to continue bringing upgrades right through the balance of 2023. And it's not like these are necessarily a sunk wasted cost because a lot of this you can build on for 2024. It's not like in 25 where that car is a total write-off because you go into 26 with new regulations. But a ton of teams did bring upgrades last weekend. We didn't get a chance to talk about it. So I want to quickly summarize these. Uh, Red Bull brought a couple of upgrades. And again, just to note as well, because we talked about the flexing wings, the teams don't actually have to publicly acknowledge or announce if they've introduced modifications to to satisfy technical directive 018. So none of these upgrades speak to that, but Red Bull had a couple of upgrades. They brought a new floor edge and a new rear wing end plate, uh, which was pretty obvious. Um, Scuderia Ferrari brought a completely new front wing last weekend. Um, Mercedes AMG Patronus F1, they brought a new front corner. Um, if we continue down the list, Alpine, they brought a ton of upgrades, and these were pretty visibly obvious um, during the practice qualifying and the race itself. Uh, they brought an entirely new, completely redeveloped side pod inlet, new cooling louvers, and a new beam wing. Uh, and then we get into the juicy stuff, uh, specifically McLaren. So hold your horses because I don't even know if that's the right expression. <laughs> Buckle up because there's a bunch of stuff. McLaren last weekend brought a new front wing end plate, a new side pod inlet, a new halo, a new floor body, a new engine cover, a new rear corner, a new rear suspension. That's not a small upgrade. They brought a new rear wing end plate and a new beam wing. Now, all of those upgrades were applied only to Lando's car. So like you said earlier, Piastri is probably just salivating at the thought of getting these upgrades for the Japanese Grand Prix, but a ton of upgrades. Alfa Romeo uh, brought new floor fences, a new diffuser, rear corner, and a new front wing. Um, Aston Martin last weekend brought a new rear corner. Uh, Scuderia Alfa Tauri, Holy crap, there were some upgrades there. New floor body, floor edge, diffuser, side pod inlet, engine cover, rear suspension, rear corner, and rear view mirror. So here we are, man, seven races away from the end of the season, and the upgrade wars are still coming fast and furious. It's, it's really interesting, right? Because uh, normally you think, well, what's the point of throwing all these bits on the car now when the, you have to think that the teams are are you know concentrating on their 2024 cars, but you have to think that these parts are be you know coming on the cars now so they can get some feedback on them to incorporate you know version 1.1 or whatever it might be into the cars for 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 next year because I don't know. It just, it seems awfully late in the season. And you go down the list of some of the upgrades that some of the teams like that McLaren list is huge. And same with Alpha Tauri, like, like a new rear suspension. That is a big, big upgrade. It's just like somebody somewhere is like, okay, guys, we just realized we got lots of space on the budget gap. Go nuts. And <laughs> just, you know, do what dude. But I mean, obviously these are targeted and planned and, and areas that they wanted to, to improve upon. But I mean, it's, it's interesting too, Mark, because like when you think about McLaren and when we were sitting here at the beginning of the season, after the first couple of races and how, let's just say unimpressive they were that, that that's kind of a generous <laughs> description of the start of their season to compare they are now i mean that's a huge turnaround and and lando scoring 85 points since that uh, first round of mega upgrades in austria back in july that is you know that's really really quite something that's quite the accomplishment from you know a number of friends kind of makes you wonder slow start to this season but what how are they positioning themselves for for 2024 i mean you know it's going to be a clean slate but still right 
I guess before we move on to the next topic, like my one thought of this is as a team, if you're operating under the cap, you have two choices, which is you can cease spending on the current car and start repositioning that 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 capital towards next year's car, or you can invest in this car with the hope that it's going to pay off in constructor's points, right? Like your hope at this point is one, you learn something that you can apply towards the 24 car, or two, it helps you cash in in prize money, which you can bring home as a reward at the end of the season. Uh, and this is why I, I also strongly believe that there should be a, a kind of a cost floor, that we've got this cost cap and you can't exceed it, but there also needs to be a cost floor because I just... I I hate to see teams like Haas that voluntarily elect not to spend the maximum amount of money on developing their car. Like the reason we introduced the cost cap was to create this parity. So anyways, I'm going to stop ranting about that. I'll kick it back over to yeah, you. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting just really briefly on that cost floor. It's just like create like a window. I don't know where that comfortable sort of like minimum is, but I mean, Zach Brown, he really was one of the ones that really led the charge on that, that sort of scaling down number. Because what where did we end up at? Like 130 million is the cost cap. And it started, what did it go from like 145 or 140? And it kind of like, step down a couple of times until where we got there but you know what would be like a reasonable amount to, to expect a team to spend you know like 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 60 million 80 million 100 million like do you want the like a narrow window or a broad i don't know it's, it's it's just interesting but like you say it's frustrating that you know they like a lot of the teams fought pretty hard to have like a cost cap which you know in retrospect is probably a good idea considering the the climate that we're living in now um but it, it's equally frustrating, like you say, that some teams just aren't even spending, you know, they, they're still trying to go through like in this economy mode. I mean, yeah, sure, don't burn money if you don't need to, but, you know, spend money at least to try and be competitive. So it's it, it, it's frustrating that they've tried to create this system where that nobody, you don't have like the Ferraris and the Mercedes and even the Red Bulls of the world spending literally like there's no tomorrow that with unlimited funds and other teams are just kind of like, mm, I'm only here so I don't get fined. Well, I guess that would be Marshawn Lynch's team, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> All right. So this is an interesting one uh, from our other favorites. Uh, one of our two favorite sources, Wikipedia or Reddit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of thought goes into planning this program. Anyways, uh, from Karaya92. So with Verstappen's P5 finish in Singapore, Michael Schumacher remains the only driver with a 100% podium record in a season. So that's pretty interesting. Do you know offhand uh, what season that would be? I don't I don't have that stat in front of me. I mean, that, that would obviously... I don't even know. Like, I'd say... Um, I would say this obviously come from the Ferrari era, but not necessarily. I mean, he won a title with uh, with Benetton hey, as well, right? You guess, guess, guess. Because what I'll do is I'll quietly, I'm going to throw out 2004. I think that's wrong, but you throw it a year and I'll find out in the Okay, background. I'm going to say 2002, so we'll find out uh, how, how wrong we uh, really were. Um, another bit uh, here, just uh, going back to Singapore last weekend. So Fernando Alonso suffered front uh, left suspension damage running over Yuki Tsunoda's parts on lap two. And then this is an interesting one from uh, Ace Bombkick on Redder, Reddit. Pardon me. So th this was the first one-two finish in that order of a Ferrari and McLaren since the 2012 German Grand Prix. So I'm kind of guessing it says also a Spaniard and a Brit. So the the German Grand Prix. So would that be would have been Fernando and would that have been Lewis or Jensen? 
I don't know. I have to like. Th- there's another thing you could look up in the <laughs> in, in, in the background. So that's kind of a cool. I have the I have the Schumacher oh, okay. stats up. By the way, so 2004, I, I was wrong because he had a retirement at Monaco and he finished seventh in Brazil and twelfth in China. Okay. Um, it looks like ooh, could this be it? 2002. In the Ferrari 50, and then they kind of micro, so the F2001 and the 2002, yeah. um, he retired seven times. So that was not oh, right daily. Shoot. I joke. Yeah. <laughs> no, I joke. His his worst finish that year was third in Malaysia. And the crazy wow. thing was they actually, they brought their, their 2001 car into that season because they hadn't finished the F2002 yet. So they actually rocked the prior year's chassis for the first two races where he finished first in Australia and third in Malaysia. The rest of the season, he finished first or second so yeah absolutely finished on the podium every i wonder if the malaysian grand prix like he started at the back of the grid one year in malaysia i wonder if that was it because i remember i I watched that race a couple of years ago probably during like the the dark days early dark days of covid and i remember looking because it was in the the f1 tv archives and michael was at the back and he went through the pack like it, it was it was ridiculous how quickly he moved up from starting to the back all the way up to wherever he ended up was it was it that year do you know yeah Yeah, i think so i think so yeah interesting and just on that other one too uh the one two finish i wikipedia to the rescue even though total wolf says nobody looks at wikipedia i live in wikipedia (laughs) at the 2012 2012 german grand prix fernando alonso won the grand prix jensen button Mm. finished second his teammate lewis hamilton retired in that race and uh, kimi raikkonen finished awesome that's cool and uh, here from f at f data analysis so charles leclerc Almost lost his P4 last weekend to uh, Max Verstappen due to a critical engine problem. The power unit was overheating. He had to use much more conservative setting. His top speed was lowered by approximately 10 kilometers an hour. Verstappen clawed back the 17 sapping gap. And get this, four laps. That is amazing. That <laughs> That is scary, Daily. right? It's, it's crazy that you and I didn't... Actually, there was a bunch of there was a whole bunch of stuff happening in this race that we didn't have the opportunity to talk about. But I I didn't think about it when we were recording the podcast, and it was only when I went back to the classification later. I was just like, how did he get that close? And I just chalked it up to his tires being cooked. Like you saw that when he was battling with George Russell and Lewis Hamilton, that those rear tires were cooked, and he was kind of losing traction in all the corners. But yeah, that makes total se- total sense that if he was losing. 10 kilometers per hour as a top speed like what does that translate into a lap that's that's tenths of a second which is how max was able to catch up so close and and max in arguably struggling like he has not struggled at all this season in a red bull that was just you know not set up or able to compete on that i mean if max was in his you know was able to set up the car like he's done you know at every other race this season he could have like carved that uh, lead of charles leclerc like it even few, you know two laps three laps i mean it went, you know max obviously was well off the pace in singapore to to claw back 17 seconds in that situation in just four laps is uh, is amazing okay so this is a a story i think that we uh, want to really jump into because it kind of goes back and this is something that uh, <clears throat> excuse me that we've uh, talked about many many times so this is an article uh, published on the race.com by valentin karuzny pardon me if 
I got that wrong, is Scott Mitchell Malm. And his title, Stewards, Verstappen let off just doesn't work for, for F1. And so Max kind of came on the radar of the stewards at Malaysia this uh, past weekend for a couple of reasons. One was uh, this uh, real pause he took at the end of the pit lane uh, uh, exit. Um, he got a reprimand uh, for that. Uh, the, the stewards found him at fault. He's, uh, you know, so he had a reason. He was trying to get a nice gap in traffic. Um, and, you know, I guess he only got a reprimand because he didn't really hold up anybody. He wasn't really blocking anyone. Um, so they were able to come to this, okay, the, the conclusion, okay, no big deal. So, uh, then that wasn't the only thing that uh, that happened. The, the the big one was he had a a bit of a, a run in with Yuki Tsunoda in Q two, and uh, you know Max kind of got in the way. Yuki was on a push lap, and that really uh, you know you know affected his ability to put uh, a, a big you know good time down. And then ultimately, what happens is. It's it's basically Max and Yuki fighting for that shot. I mean, like on the surface, it looks a little bit kind of, oh yeah, we got Red Bull and Red Bull two kind of scrapping it out, and Max is the one that kind of like ultimately benefits of it. But where the you know, let's not read more into that. I mean, I don't think there was any conspiracy there. I think that was just Max looking out for Max, and it just happened to be the the Alpha Towery car, but that always goes back to this evergreen conversation and rant that you and I seem to have. It Like, was it every week now or every two weeks? It's a very regular, but, you know, the 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 whole argument of Valentin's and, and Scott's article here is just the you know, the reprimand and then a 5,000 euro fine to, uh, that was given to Red Bull for what they, uh, you know, what, what Red Bull actually admitted to was poor communication over the radio to let Max know what was coming. So it's just, I don't know. It's, it, to me, it's the, the whole inconsistency and of letting stewards decide these things. And of course, every situation is a little bit different. You know, it's sometimes, I guess, you know, they kind of have to play in that gray area because if they they say, well, you know, if it's impeding, then it's always going to be this. And there's always uh, that 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 discussion. But and we're, we're going to talk about like uh, Sergio Perez and Alex Albon, which is a moment nobody even like saw at the time because it wasn't captured by the by the uh, the, the, the race feed because we were all watching what was happening with Carlos Sainz, Lando Norris and Charles Leclerc and, and Lewis and George and everything of those last couple of laps but again it's the the whole what it looks like to be inconsistent application of the you know of rules right mark you know it, it's funny daily because i was thinking about this topic the other day and i feel like oh, this year feels a little bit better there's there's been less controversy around the stewarding and i i had this realization that the stewarding has been so has been it's been moderately I would just say it's been quite frankly inconsequential this year because the championship is so clearly decided that any stewarding decisions are largely irrelevant because it doesn't necessarily impact the outcome of a race or a championship in a meaningful way. And if you look, and I think you did a great job of summarizing this experience during qualifying, but imagine that scenario if the championship was the two 
contenders were separated by 10 points. And imagine that that had happened in a moment where where Max Verstappen was fighting for pole. And ultimately, he managed to keep his pole because the stewards decided not to penalize him for that moment. And then the situation is compounded because the car he interfered with was a car on his own team. Even though it's not his team, it was a car on his own team. And of course, they're not going to elect to push or contend or dispute or fight the FIA outcome because it's just not what they're going to do. But I just, I, I fear that maybe the quality of officiating in the sport hasn't in changed in a material way. It's just that it's become less consequential because the championship so firmly decided and there's really nobody battling at the front. And maybe there's some data and some statistics that will kind of, um, I would say, uh, maybe compromise my statement or, or contradict it in some way. But uh, yeah, there's just, there's still too much of this. Like it feels like this year has been better, but maybe that's just because the championship has decided. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it too was, I remember a couple of years ago, like the, the one that sort of, well, I mean, obviously Abu Dhabi 2021 made the headlines for all the wrong reasons. But prior to that, remember the one year in Austria, there was that, that really inconsistent application of like uh, track uh, limits and it was just driving, uh, everybody uh you know crazy and and the you know the thing that's interesting here is that you know you know the, you have like this rotating set of uh, of stewards right so that so the you know the last time that um you know you had uh, like some stewards sort of get like fingered for you know like maybe being a little bit inconsistent or whatever you want to call it when it came to the application of the rules it was completely different than the you know the group of stewards that we had like uh, th- like this weekend right i mean uh, you know, there, there were uh, this uh, this weekend the the the, the stewards were tim mayer felix holter danny sullivan jean francois calm and uh, oh pardon me that that was the uh, the original uh, weekend at uh, at monaco and then this weekend uh, was gary connolly matteo perini Antonio liuzzi and a local rep representative was uh, by the name of uh, Paul Ng. So, you know, you can't really make the argument, oh, this is just sort of this traveling group of stewards that you got it wrong one weekend and they do it the same. So it's just kind of interesting because, and I guess it's really difficult too, because remember... And well, I, I don't want to jump ahead because we we should uh, like maybe set up the Perez, you know, Albon incident first. But again, it's just... It's it's really difficult, I think, to to say that every time something in in Formula One that happens is going to be black and white because I don't think it's black and white. I mean, I agree, totally you know, agree, totally agree. With the the exception of some situations like Michael Schumacher and Jacques Villeneuve at at, at Portugal at Jerez in 1997, that was pretty black and white. If you if you're not sure what I'm t- talking about, go to YouTube and search that one up and it's a, you know, you know, I don't want to bias any opinions, but you know, <laughs> that was pretty uh, black and white. Uh, you know, the, who was at fault to to blame for 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 that situation? And so, why don't do you want to tee up what happened with Alex Albon and Sergio Perez? Because this is something that that you know we kind of like didn't we obviously did talk about it on our, our our race recap, but this flew under the radar completely because, like I said just now, we were all focused what was happening with the the first three or four cars, well, the first three cars, especially after George put it into the tire barrier there, but this whole situation a little bit uh, further back with Sergio and Alex Albon completely escaped the attention of literally everybody because it did get captured by the camera for obvious reasons. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I wasn't even aware it happened. And I should have been because we should be able to, as the race goes on, monitor the, the kind of the real-time race classification and to see somebody like Alex Albon, who'd been fighting for a points position, suddenly tumble out of the points should have been somewhat obvious. But then again, during the race, you're focusing on what's happening at the front and you start to you start to create rationalizations for what might be happening in the middle of the pack. But uh, there's a great article here in the race.com from Josh Sutil. Um, and he speaks to a couple of comments. One, that from a race officiation perspective, uh, the stewards are very, very, very happy at this point to hand out five second time penalties. In fact, at Monza, and I didn't know this, one fifth of the grid actually received one for uh, wildly varying degrees of, as he writes, crimes, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, that was, but yeah. he writes that unseen by the broadcast, Perez was trying to wrestle eighth place away from Alex Albon, who in turn was tucked up behind Alpha Tauri stand-in Liam Lawson. As the trio headed into the tight turn 13 hairpin, Perez lunged his RB19 down the inside of Albon and collided with the Williams driver at the apex of the corner. Perez emerged relatively unscathed and went on to further progress to eighth place after taking Lawson, who put up a stern defense shortly afterwards. Albon's race, though, was ruined as he lost 17 seconds, reversing out of the wall and back onto the track, evaporating his chance of points and his misfortune or his and his misfortune and turn open the door for a bigger payday for two of Williams' main rivals, Haas and Alpha Tauri. And of course, Williams themselves have commented on this circumstance because, of course, for a team like Williams, who is fighting for every possible championship point, this is very consequential mm -hmm. because you're giving up points, in this case, to your direct competitors, which can translate into tens of millions of dollars of prize money. But ultimately, I think the question here is, you know, Sergio Perez effectively did T-bone him in that lunge, which I think is a fairly generous term. But Daly, going back and revisiting this post-race, now that you and I have had a chance to kind of analyze it, um, your thoughts, was this a racing incident as as Perez and, and Red Bull would like you to believe? Or was this a little bit more heinous in terms of being more deserving of a of a greater penalty, especially when you consider what the outcome was to Albon tumbling out of the points. Well, that's kind of the the whole crux of the conversation. the The statement by the stewards is uh, is interesting because they said, "quote The stewards considered that this was uh, and there's an inverted commas an optimistic." late maneuver by Perez that could be defined as diving in and that there was nothing that Albon could have done to avoid the collision. Accordingly, it is determined that Perez was pr predominantly to blame. We note that the presence of the slower car Lawson in front of Albon caused Perez to believe that he may uh, make the overtake and therefore in mitigation of the penalty, we determined to allocate only one penalty point, end quote. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, in the article here uh, from, from, uh, here from on the uh on the uh the, the race sorry just lost it here for a second and it, it's funny because it's highlighted here that the you know the optimistic uh, move is extremely generous you know that's the you know the, the words used by uh josh uh, sutil and and you know the the irony isn't really lost on me because 
the the first thing that kind of like popped to my mind was Silverstone 2021 when Lewis and Max had like the the big coming together and that was that first year where it's just like you know if the I car still have PTSD from the social media fallout from oh that oh my man. god right and then the, the like the the whole that well if this car is like here and then how uh, you know Red Bull actually had Alex Albon go and recreate that, <laughs> that whole incident by, by driving around the um, around the track. So it's, uh, you know, the irony of, um, you know, Albon now being T-boned by a Red Bull car and, you know, basically ruining his uh, his race was not lost on me. But again, it just seems like inconsistent, you know, applications of things. It just, to, to me, Perez got off extremely light and he's just kind of like, Meh, you know, it was just a racing incident. But, you know, not really when a, a racing... Eh. You know, it's, it's it's perspective. You know, one party is always going to be more biased to, than, than the other. But the the fact that the stewards actually put the term optimistic and put it in inverted commas in their statement and then just gave him like one penalty point, it just kind of seems, boy, dude, you really got off easy on that one because you know the the consequences what you know Alex Albon suffered because you know like we we jumped into doing the like the post race show literally right after I finished watching the race which was a little bit later than normal so I we didn't really get a chance to to digest whatever happened afterwards so going down the uh, the, the race classification and you know we noticed that uh, that uh, Albon was out of the you know the points and you know we'd been talking about just like well you know he's scored all these points for Williams this year so he's had a bit of an off day and then lo and behold we find out why afterwards but yeah I I, I really think Sergio got off easy on this one Mark yeah totally agree yeah. totally agree my friend yeah. okay let's jump into a, a quick break here we'll come back on the flip side there's still plenty of things to talk about we've got some more f1 news we're going to reboot um moto gp quarter and but first of all we're going to talk about a, a bit of a juicy fun one what's going to happen at alpha Tauri next year you got this interesting situation with uh, yuki Sonoda, liam lawson and danny ricardo and who may end up where and who might not so we'll talk about that in just a moment, so please don't go away. All right, welcome back. So a couple of things we have here from uh, Yepa H. Olson on Twitter. Uh, quotes, hearing from reliable people that Alpha Tauri's 2024 lineup is set. Sonoda and Ricardo. Sonoda will to be announced in the coming race weekend. Ricardo TBD team is very happy with Lawson and wants to keep him as an option for the 2025 shuffle. And then uh, via Toby Gruner, uh, we expect uh, Yuki Sonoda to be confirmed for 2024 this week at Suzuka would make, you know, total sense. Japanese driver, the Japanese Grand Prix with a champion, well, not a championship but a winning car, but in a team with a Honda engine. So that would be all sorts of good press uh, all the way around. And, you know, the timing makes perfect sense there. Uh, anyways, Toby goes on to say, Ricardo announcement will follow later. Mick Schumacher is not an option for Williams. He's looking for a double job WEC driver at Alpine and F1 reserve at uh, Mercedes. Talk a little bit more. So Mark, it was interesting. We talked about this uh, a little bit 
bit uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, just sort of speculating who could go where. But, uh, you know, our, our friend uh, Josh Sutil over at uh, The Race has really been busy because he's penned another article entitled Red Bull Has to Make Sure Lawson is on the 2024 Grid. And... I, I don't know. Has there, has there been another driver recently that we've been saying after three races into their career that, uh, that this is a driver that needs to you know stay on a team? I mean, we've been critical cred- critical about many drivers that needed to get the H out of Formula One ASAP because they, they just uh, weren't up to it. No names uh, mentioned uh, specifically because we don't want to go there. <laughs> but I mean, Lawson, wow, what an amazing introduction we've had to this young New Zealand uh, New Zealander over the past uh, several races and I've I mean I'm I'm impressed I mean th- this is what you know Liam Lawson has done in, in a car which is arguably one of if not the worst cars on the grid this year and has driving this thing around like he's a season pro it's it's fantastic to watch I don't really know what else I can add, right? And we we did a really great job, I think, a couple of weeks ago about cap, kind of recapping the circumstances that led to him piloting that AlphaTauri AT04 in the rain at Zandvoort and what a sensational job he did there to bring that car home in one piece in, in 13th place. And of course, in Italy, a track that definitely is not friendly to the aerodynamic characteristics of that car. He was just on the outside of the points. I, and then this weekend at Singapore in a very different track track he finished p9 and if you look at the 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 tracks that he's been at they're very different characteristically like you have a high downforce zanford and then you have a low downforce monaco and then you have a high downforce very tight very technical street course in singapore uh and he and he's excelling and the the challenge or the opportunity here maybe it's an opportunity for helmet marco and christian horner is you you now have five drivers really that are potentially capable of piloting one of their four Formula One cars next year. And we know that Max Verstappen is going to be in that seat. So really it's three seats for four drivers mm-hmm. and, and who's, who's it going to be? And I wouldn't put it past them to, to make a surprise move on that, that Red Bull, um, on that Red Bull seat. But I just don't know if they're willing to take a risk on Daniel Ricciardo, given how small his sample has been this year. And I would be shocked if it was Yuki. And then we are hearing all these stories this week that Yuki is expected to be confirmed for next year in Japan, because of course he's Japanese and it's a good marketing piece, especially with that Honda power unit. So if, if Yuki gets that second seat and they bring back Perez, then really it's down to Ricciardo and it's down to Lon. Awesome. And and if they go with with Daniel Ricardo, like where do you stash this guy next year, and how do you justify keeping somebody off the grid that is clearly capable of competing in in a Formula One car? And I think that's really the crux of the of the article. Do you put them on loan to another team? Is there another team that would be interested to bring over a Red Bull Academy driver for a single season? I don't know, but I think what we've seen in three races has been pretty pretty darn sensational especially when he's still competing in the japanese super formula championship and he still has the opportunity to potentially bring that home sitting in second place but pretty pretty sensational story for sure yeah i mean if they put dan back in the alpha towery for next year or whatever this team is going to be kind of makes me wonder what would like this major rebrand we're going to see for for alpha towery going into 24 maybe they want like a like, like a name driver in there and you know clearly they still see value in having Danny Ricardo around because I mean was it not Christian Horner or Helmut Marco the other week uh, saying that they were 
pretty shocked with some of the bad habits that Danny had picked up in those years at uh, Renault slash Alpine and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and McLaren. So it's the, the question is, okay, well, if Dan goes back into that, uh, that Alpha Towery next year and, and Yuki's con- going to be confirmed, like literally hours after this podcast drop at, uh, at Suzuka, the question is, say, you know, what do you do with Liam Lawson? Because I mean, clearly this is a driver that you don't want, you know, migrating to another, you know, team or another program. It's just like, obviously he's got the talent and the, uh, you know, heaps of talent to be driving in Formula One. It's like, what, what do you do? Do you, you know, park him as reserve driver at Red Bull for a year and, and, and bring him up and get him exposed to that? It's like, d- does that that help him or is it more beneficial to have him in you know in the in the junior team effectively which uh, which alpha towery or whatever they become known as is uh for, for a season because sometimes that that helps sometimes it doesn't so it'll be interesting to see how they they, they manage it or do they just let him stay where he's racing right now and then you know, bring him out to be reserve driver, get him some of those uh, rookie, you know, young driver laps and things like that. Let him do the Pirelli tests, whatever, or filming days and all these different options. Not quite the same as like the testing that they had back in the day where you could literally just put a driver in a, a car and just go to a test track and just drive from sun up to sundown, but um, certainly not one that uh, you want to get away. But then it's interesting too, because if you go back to that first tweet from Yeppe Olison, it's just like, you know, the 2025 shuffle is the idea. Keep uh, you know, Lawson around somewhere, either let him keep uh, racing where he is, have him as a reserve driver for Red Bull, or maybe have him as a full-time reserve driver, whatever it might be. But like the 2025 shuffle, or, you know, are we reading between the lines here that uh, that, that somebody's going to be auditioning for that that seat at uh, at Red Bull and and Sergio Perez probably isn't going to be around next uh, you know beyond next year after his contract you know ends that's sort of kind of how I see it and then is it uh, you know does it become that Ricardo may be the favorite to go back there because you know, just ask any number of driver that's a young driver that's kind of gone into that that Red Bull seat. You can ask Pierre Gasly, you can ask Alex Elbon, you can ask uh, Daddy Kvyat, uh, etc. That sometimes taking this young Red Bull driver, parking them in, or putting them in that second Red Bull, has more often than not worked out the way as intended so i i find it you know really easy i mean we could probably sit here for an hour and speculate and it'll but it'll be interesting i mean if they introduce or announce yuki is confirmed for next year and then uh, ricardo afterwards then i think that really kind of sets the uh sets the table for the the who goes to red bull in 2025 and then like i say does that mean that checo is gonna be out of a job at red bull after that i don't know lots of fun to talk about mark Okay, so another thing that'll be uh, fun to talk about, flexi floor suspicions. Mark, what's going on with flexi floors? We we just kind of got through. Oh my God, <laughs> man, man, man. So I, I, we don't need to kind of spend a ton of time on this, but technical directive 0018 speaks to the suspicions that the FIA has or the knowledge that the FIA has that some teams have been developing aerodynamic surfaces that flex. And we talked about some of the benefits or why that could be beneficial to some of the teams. But what we haven't talked a lot about is Technical Directive 39. And of course, this was introduced a few years ago to to help circumvent the porpoising issue that was so prevalent in the early parts of 2022. Um, 
That said, uh, I'm going to read here from motorsport.com because I think this is really interesting. Tech or motorsport.com writes the potential exploitation of flexibility in the floor. So again, we've been talking about aerodynamic surfaces on the top of the car. This writes the potential exploitation of flexibility in the floor is the sole focus of the latest TD39 revisions with the FIA stating in its updated documents that we have become aware of design details in the region of the skids that aim to take maximum advantage of the permitted stiffness in these regions. Whilst these designs may comply with the deflection requirements of 315.6 and 315.8, we would like to remind teams that designs must still comply with the relevant bodywork demands dimensional constraints. Motorsport.com continues, the theories about movable planks drew further credence with the FIA reminding teams that there had to be a continuous surface on the reference plane. It also added, designs must not utilize brakes in the surface to facilitate differences in vertical stiffness across the brake or to facilitate differential motion across the brake that led to discontinuities in the surface. To ensure teams stopped playing around with any tricks, the FIA said that certain designs were to be outlawed along the reference plane, which is in effect the plank, and it goes on to specify specifically what those were. So not only are we talking now over the course of the last month about the FIA clamping down on flexible aerodynamic surfaces on the top of the car, Mm -hmm. what they're arguing is that teams are also incorporating designs in the floor area that allowing the floor surfaces to flex, which is incredibly, incredibly, I wouldn't say bold because it's ultimately the FIA's job to identify when teams are doing this and stamp it out with technical directives and fines and penalties and things like that. But the reason that this is really pertinent to this discussion is we just came out of Singapore, which is a tight, relatively slow technical track where some of the applications of the technical directives might not be so obvious, but now we're going to Japan and it's going to be really interesting to see if these technical directives, the two of them, chop up the order in any meaningful way. And I think there was a lot of talk last week about the fact that, hey, did Red Bull suffer because they'd implemented changes due to technical directive 008, 0018? And of course, Christian Horner and team like, no, 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 we didn't make any fundamental changes. But it'll be really interesting to see what the teams look like this week. And by that, I mean, are we going to see teams that we expect to perform reasonably well at this track deep in the midfield or at the back of the pack? And if they are, can we attribute it to a setup issue, a driver issue, um, a tire degradation issue, or can we isolate it potentially to the fact that the teams had to make changes to accommodate these technical directives? Yeah, that'll be really interesting because, uh, you know, everybody and Red Bull themselves expect that uh, they're going to be back to their their dominant selves at Suzuka this weekend. I mean, they were saying it, uh, you know, Max was saying this past weekend that they did all the sim work and the sim work for Suzuka was looking extremely promising the fact that uh, yeah we're having a bad weekend this weekend but we think we're going to be right back on it uh, you know when we go to Japan next week so I would I you know I'm expecting to see Red Bull you know Max especially flying out there uh, out front I mean Sergio should be able to do something similar if you know he's not having a bad weekend which is not beyond the realm of possibility because we've seen several of them this uh, over the course of this season but um, you know despite what they say maybe they you know maybe they have been affected but i don't know i mean christian horner says you know 
seems to be quite uh, forthcoming about it and it would be interesting i'm expecting to see shakeups uh, somewhere else i mean if we see one team really drop back that we're we're not expecting then that will ask a you know like you know that'll really beg the question to be answered you know was that one of the teams that uh, was really kind of run afoul of the uh you know the regs and was behind the you know the, the reason for TD018 and the whole flexi surface thing. So that's, you know, was quite something, but I, I, I'm expecting to see Red Bull uh, run away with it. So let's uh, move on to the, this next one here. So Total Wolf is uh, weighed in on Felipe Massa's uh, legal bid to have the uh, 2008 Formula One World Championship um, overturned. So Total believes that Formula One would basically fall into disarray. Well, that's the word that he used. If uh, Massa wins his legal challenge to to overturn the results of that uh, that that championship. So Toto said, uh, quote, I don't think he has a case, to be honest. We are signing up to uh, sporting regulations. They're very clear, and you commit as a license holder. If everyone were to open up situations, then the sport would be in disarray. And especially when you look at the full championships, there's so many things that have an influence, whether you win or lose, and I don't see the case, to be honest. On the civil side, I don't know. Let's evaluate whether there's some damages that could be claimed. I think reputation, they have a difficult position. What is it but for me uh, this is like watching a telenovela or a soap opera playing out in front of me end quote so so that's interesting because you know you would have to think that Toto would be sitting there with some interest because you know there there was obviously some shady things going on with the whole crash gates and you know how that ultimately you know, came into the play with the how that uh, you know that championship uh, worked out and it kind of makes me wonder if you know massa is successful lewis will be the victim uh, and you know he'll be the one that uh, you know is directly affected because he'll lose that championship, and all of a sudden Lewis not seven time world championship, he's six time world championship. I could see like Toto and the Mercedes lawyers going and say, "Aha! Well, there was all these shenanigans that cost Felipe Massa the the world championship in two thousand and eight. That's been overturned, and well, you know now I think we really need to have a good hard look at what happened in two thousand and twenty one." at Abu Dhabi and, you know, really push a challenge there. I mean, it just, you know, I, I really feel for Felipe Massa. I mean, I think that, um, you know, that dirty shenanigans with, uh, you know, what, what happened with Crashgate and Nelson Piquet Jr. and Briatore and that 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 crowd, you know, it, it's just an ugly stain on, on, on Formula One. And I like I say, I feel bad for Massa. I would feel even worse for Lewis if uh, he was to, to lose out on that uh, championship and have it awarded to, to, to Massa. But then it would sort of kick off this whole snowballing thing. It's just like, do we really need to go back and 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 review <laughs> to, to all these moments i i don't know but it's interesting uh, love to hear your thoughts uh, now mark i think and i don't think the story is going to come to a, a a conclusion that we're all going to feel good about any given time and unfortunately and maybe fortunately it it pulls back the curtains on an era of f1 that were perhaps dominated by by pretty blatant corruption and, and scandal. And unfortunately, as far back as that is in the past, it's pretty relevant now because of lawsuits like this. Uh, but Total Wolf's comments as well about the fact that 
if even remotely successful, if even if they don't change the outcome of the championship or there's a broader acknowledgement or compensation paid by the FOM to, to Massa or the FIA is forced to acknowledge some form of misgivings about the way that it was handled, like it it really does create some chaos because, and, and you know, Total Wolf over the last week has said, hey, look, we, Mercedes, are sitting here watching this very closely. Now, he's not acknowledging or admitting that they plan any legal action of their own, but I think from his perspective, this gives him and his team and Lewis a real frame of reference into what's possible. And again, mm-hmm. 2008 was different than 2021 and 2000. Eight. It was one of the teams and one of the drivers committed fraud. They they cheated in a Formula One Grand Prix. And I don't believe, and I'm convinced that there was no fraud, that this wasn't a scheme. It wasn't collusion. It wasn't corruption. It was human error. But at the same time, if there's some, if there's some degree of acknowledgement that the FIA and the FOM erred in 2008, does that does that give Mercedes an opening to revisit 21? And I don't think they would because I think that they're still very much invested in the present, which is growing Formula One and, and Formula One continuing to um, explode in popularity. And I think they probably are wise enough to acknowledge that if they, as an active participant in the championship, took the FIA or Formula One to court over the outcome of a championship two years in the past, I think they're probably wise enough and have enough self-awareness to realize that would be very destructive to what they're trying to achieve, which is to grow the value of the championship. Uh, But certainly, like he said, it could create some significant disarray um, if even remotely successful. Yeah. And and yeah, (laughs) it's just like, do you really want to go there? But I I mean, Toto and the like the the Mercedes legal team, they're going to they're just going to do their due diligence. Right. And, And see where this whole massive challenge goes and then you know that's that's just being a good professional that's just uh, doing what you need to do and seeing okay well is that relevant and and like you say i mean like those were two championships that were 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 affected and it's just unfortunate if you're lewis i mean you you're 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 wrapped up in both of them i mean you you were the you lost out in one championship because of all the you know the the you know the ineptitude that happened in abu dhabi and then i wouldn't say you were the beneficiary because i mean he had to do the work and you know he did over the course of the seasons just that that crash gate thing which was obviously you know some you know blatant cheating by Renault to you know you know benefit uh, themselves in that situation you know cost uh, Felipe Massa but just gets like so so sloppy but you made a great point about Mercedes being invested in in, in growing Formula One right now because it, it, it puts them in a bit of a you know like a difficult spot it's just like well, what what happens if uh, Massa wins his legal bid? You know, Lewis loses that championship. It's just like, do we want to like, you know, like, you know, crack this thing open even further and, and push have like the uh, a review and try and overturn the result of the 2021 World Championship when you know that's still so recent and it's just like you know, do we just kind of like sit here and accept that that's what happened? And then just kind of throw all your eggs in your basket to try and help Lewis win another championship. I don't know. There's so many things, right? I mean, you can sit there and kind of slice this thing so many different ways. It's uh, it's a really quite uh, 
quite amazing. So let's uh, move on. So the Felipe Drugovic, uh, young Brazilian driver, um, you know, on the topic of uh, Brazilian drivers, has been a talk uh, with Williams in uh, recent times. Apparently, you know, there, there might be something happening there. But also Drugovic was uh, rejected by Alfa Romeo for financial reasons. So I guess maybe that uh, had something to do with the, the, the whole... You know, I mean, Guan Yu Zhou was kind of up in the air, and they just kind of announced uh, just last weekend that they've reached a, a new deal with him. I think uh, Bottas is the, the the perfect kind of uh, you know seasoned Formula One driver to you know be in that team as they you know transition slowly towards Audi in twenty twenty six. And I think if you're Valtteri Bottas, you want to stick with that program as long as possible. Uh, you know, before it comes like a, a works Audi team. I mean, I mean, who wouldn't want to be in that uh, situation? Situation, but interesting. I mean, it sounds like Drugovic is uh, really knocking on the door. Whether or not uh, he can uh, secure a Formula One drive remains to be seen. Especially, and and we talked about it was on Sunday or last week, just about the whole like what's going to happen with the with, with Logan Sargent because I mean he's had less than a stellar season this year, even even by rookie standards. It's it's been pretty rough, Mark. The, the only thing I would add on this one is, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, my impression or the general understanding of Logan Sargent and Williams was that they recognized that he probably wasn't F1 ready coming into this championship, but they thought, hey, look, you know what? We have two choices. We leave him in the junior formula and bring him in for 24, or we start giving him some reps in 23, and he can build on that for 24. But I think the the challenge now is maybe, maybe Williams has had some form of window into his potential and maybe they're not liking what they're seeing and this Felipe Dragovic story is picking up uh, a lot of steam and obviously no one at Williams has confirmed anything but ultimately and, and I'll kind of wrap it up on this note maybe maybe Logan Sargent's tenure in Formula One will be a short one and then we'll see Dragovic who's been long linked to a ride in Formula One will be his his replacement and there were a lot of stories over the last couple of weeks that were linking him to Alfa Romeo um Sauber, I guess we should, we start conditioning ourselves to calling Alfa Romeo Sauber now. Uh, but there was a lot of stories that linked him to Sauber. And that was one of the reasons that we hadn't seen uh, the young Chinese driver at Alfa Romeo sign, uh, sign an extension. And when I guess the Drogovic deal fell apart, there was an opening uh, for them to go in a different direction. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what does, what, what direction Williams goes going into 24. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this, it's, it's interesting, right? Because sometimes you think that the, like the driver lineups are, are set. And then every year I kind of think to myself, oh, there won't be any driver silly season this year, but there, there, there always is. Somebody's going to move somewhere. And it, it isn't always at the big, uh, you know, like high profile seats at like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari, even the McLaren. But, uh, you know, I, I think that just because there are so few seats available in Formula One, anytime somebody moves anywhere or re-signs a new deal or whatever it might be, it's always big news just due to the fact that the scarcity of a of Formula One uh, seat is uh, so great. Okay, one quick uh, IndyCar story. I'm going to jump into uh, MotoGP corner, and then we're going to preview the Japanese Grand Prix this week. So apparently, uh, they're looking at having a, a non-international race on the 2024 IndyCar uh, calendar. Would be the first time since 2013 since they've done that. Both uh, Bobby Rahal and uh, and Mario Andretti 
absolute legends in their own right uh, in IndyCar for for many, many reasons, both in and out of the car. Uh, both of them are pushing to make sure that this is a, a, a championship race with points awarded rather than just sort of like a, you know, like a, a one-off glitzy non-championship, non-points race. And I think they should because, I mean, they did have race, uh, race internationally. I went, they went to, to quite, uh, you know, a number of uh, different racetracks around the world at their peak. And if you go back to the early 90s, I mean, IndyCar was everywhere, and uh, the, the notes I was just looking at that uh, early '90s, they had broadcasting rights in 120 countries. So I mean, they've really kind of fallen. But I mean, then you get into the whole schism uh, between themselves and the Indy Racing League and, and everything, which which really you know affected open real uh, racing in North America for for a long, long time. Because IRL, they had the crown jewel that was Tony George's baby, and Tony George owns Indianapolis, and all of a sudden, all these great Indy drivers weren't going to, to being able to race at the brickyard and and IRL was uh, you know basically a, an oval uh, series so interesting but uh, I, I certainly agree with uh, with Mario and Dreddy and, and Bobby Rahal I think that if you're going to race internationally in IndyCar throw that race under the calendar in 2024 absolutely make it a, a points race so Mark now over to you it super is motor- fast super, super fast. fast okay so quick story today it sounds as though Mark Marquez might be leaving the factory Honda team. Of course, he's been with the factory Honda team since he entered the premier class of MotoGP in 2013. He may, uh, writes Simon Patterson over at therace.com, he may be looking to link up in a one-year deal with a satellite Ducati team at Grassini. And writes Simon Patterson, the speculation is that he might, in a bid to exit Honda, uh, and these are my words, as quickly as possible, take a seat at a satellite Ducati team with the hopes of getting a factory ride for 2025. So more to come on this story, but this is huge news in the world of Formula One. Of course, you know, ever since he suffered a rash of injuries kind of post-COVID, Mark Marquez certainly hasn't been contending for race wins, but that's really been complicated. His health has been complicated by the fact that Honda's given him a terrible chassis, terrible reliability, and terrible aerodynamics the last couple of years. But just a story to watch. Um, the other story is that MotoGP is in India this weekend. Uh, I don't think any of us thought that race was going to happen. And there has been massive amounts of issues with drivers, riders even get into the countries. There's been um, all kinds of visa issues. And it sounds as though Dorna and the FIAM have not yet homologated the circuit that they intend to race on this weekend. So there's a lot of controversy in the world of MotoGP right now that Dorna signed up to take them to a track that may not even be suitable for hosting a MotoGP event. And that a lot of the riders and a lot of the media haven't even been able to get into the country and the clock is ticking and the race is just a couple of days away. So interesting times in the world of MotoGP. And next week, uh, I'll share a story about the fact that MotoGP might be going to Hungary, a place it's been twice in the past, 91 and 93, I think, in the Hungary ring. But uh, we might be seeing MotoGP. Dorna might be bringing the sport back to Hungary in the very near future. So that is MotoGP for this weekend, my friend. Very, very cool. So let's uh, jump into uh, previewing the Japanese uh, Grand Prix. Hammy, have you ever been to Japan? 
oh, my friend, I want to go so... I'm, I'm guessing you have, but I, I want to go so badly, so badly I want to go. I, I love Japan, the country. I love the people, the culture, the history. I've been fascinated Japan basically uh, my, my entire life. I've only, unfortunately, ever been there once, and I am desperate to go back again. I just... I love everything about it. And uh, what's I, your what's your favorite anime? What's your favorite anime? I'm you know honestly I'm not really a, a big anime guy, but one of my really? fa- one of my favorite movies is Seven Samurai. That is an okay. all time classic movie. It goes on for like seventeen hours, but it's it's absolutely brilliant. If you know if you're looking for a classic movie to watch, uh, go uh, check that one out. Suzuka. One of my favorite tracks, you know, this is a track that has almost everything. And I think one of the, the, the there's two very distinct and unique, um, you know, portions to this track. One is this is a track that kind of overlaps on itself because there's a bridge where they actually cross over themselves, which is kind of cool. But you come down into, uh, you know, the start finish and you go down this, uh, not, a super long straightaway. You go into turn one, 280 kilometer an hour turn, eighth gear, go into turn two. And it's not like it, it it's not really like a double curve, like a double corner. It's not like that triple apex corner that we see in Ape, uh, Istanbul, but it's very clever the way that it's designed. You go into turn one, turn two, and then you go through the next four or five corners, which is the uh, Suzuka S's, which is very cool because by the time that you go from turn one, you're at 280, you hit uh, turn two, second gear, 130 kilometers an hour, speed back up to 220 to get to turn three. That's a six uh, and six gear. Then you go through the S's and it's a slightly decreasing serial speed wise velocity wise going through the s's by the time you get out of it uh, into turn six and to go up the hill and then a left-hander to turn seven very cool and then you have the almost 190 mile an hour 295 kilometer an hour eighth gear corner r130 r130 that stands for the radius of the curve you know math nerds will uh, appreciate that it's just flat out i mean it's very cool to watch him, then they come into the the, the chicane, a very sharp uh, right-hander, then the left-hander turns 16 and 17, bring it back around into start, finish again. I love this track. I mean, there's a lot of uh, change in elevation. The only thing that, uh, you know, it can be... Um, and I don't want to say uh, you know a downer about it, but we've seen some pretty nasty weather at Suzuka over the years, and uh, you know at, at the time that we've seen it, and typically it's been in the fall. And you pointed out last week, Mark, that this is the last time we're going to see the Japanese Grand Prix sort of like loaded at the the towards the end of the calendar because next year in twenty four it's going to be front loaded to what is, is it as early as March twenty twenty four? I don't have the schedule in front of me. Yes, it is. So that that's great to see. So you know the the good thing is. I've already checked out. So Saturday for qualifying, we're looking at uh, cloudy conditions, 82 Fahrenheit, about 28 degrees Celsius. Sunday, about the same. It's going to be cloudy, a little bit cooler, 26 or about 79, 80 degrees uh, Fahrenheit uh, in there. So as long as it stays dry, that, uh, that'll that be the, 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 the great thing to see. Some many memorable moments, uh, of course, one that stands out. We've talked about it uh, you know, quite a bit. You know, Very, very relevant uh, this year was the 1980, uh, sorry, 1980. Season, uh, Alex uh, Alexander Prost, pardon me, Alan Prost and uh, Ayrton Senna coming together at the chicane at uh, turn seventeen. That ruined would have been what uh, would have been their perfect uh, season because just like Red Bull was dominant this year. 
they were dominant uh, in 1988, the, the, the pair of Senna and Prost. Uh, unlike Red Bull this year, who were just beaten straight up on the track when, uh, and you know, at uh, at Singapore last weekend, Senna and Prost, uh, you know, basically canceled each other out and ruined their opportunity as a team to uh, write uh, history back then. But, you know, that's, you know, Hammy, I, I can't say enough good things about this track. I love Suzuka for so many reasons. I yeah, really and, and I think Mario Isola, the head of motorsport at Pirelli, feels very much the same way. He wrote this week in a press statement, the Japanese Grand Prix takes place on one of the most fascinating and demanding tracks in Formula One history. Suzuka with his unique figure or a figure of eight layout. The historic venue is a driver's favorite, being absolutely thrilling to drive in today's ultra-competitive single-seaters. With his very significant lateral and vertical loads, Suzaka is as demanding on tires as it is on drivers. These demands are equally distributed across all four wheels, with 10 right-handers and eight left-handers throughout the six-kilometer lap. As a result of these challenging characteristics, we bring some of the hardest tires in the Pirelli range to Japan. C1, C2, and C3. This is only nominally the same as last year's selections on account of the new C1 compound. So very, very interesting. And to me, I love this track. I love the look. Uh, I just checked the I just checked the forecast. It looks like uh, it's going to be a little wet on the Friday. It's going to be dry and cloudy on Saturday and sunny, clear and warm 26 degrees centigrade as a high on Saturday. So the conditions should be good. Um, a couple of other considerations that we should probably comment on this track is a very quick circuit. Um, it has a beautiful combination, like you said, of sweeping super Super high speed corners and more technical, challenging, uh, I would say high downforce corners. It also has one of the most abrasive aggregates in the entire championship. And it's one of the reasons why they typically steer towards the um, less sticky range of tire compounds, because I think if you went in here with a soft tire, the aggregate will just chew it to pieces and you end up with a three-stop race. So typically they steer towards the more kind of, I, I would say, um, the harder compound tires. That's the word I'm looking for. But like you, I, I'm certainly looking forward to this this race. Um, I think, by the way, I was mistaken. I think it's going to be an April date next week okay. or next year. And the reason being, of course, is that historically we've seen rain at this track, lots and lots and lots of rain. And I think at least I saw the statistic earlier today that at least on four occasions, they've run qualifying on the morning of the Grand Prix on the Sunday because of a total washout on the Saturday. And certainly we've seen that before. Um, I think you and I both enjoy the occasional wet race, but really I'd love to see a dry warm, sticky race this weekend. I don't mm -hmm. want to see rain in part because this is a dangerous circuit just because it's a relatively, not even a relatively, it is a very high speed circuit. Um, uh, but certainly it's, it's one of my favorites and I can't wait to, uh, I can't wait to get there, um, in a couple of days, by the way, just bringing up the calendar for next season. It looks like, so we open next year, Bahrain, Saudi, Australia, Japanese Grand Prix is the fourth race of the championship. And it takes place on the 7th of April, two weeks after the the Australian Grand Prix. So we're in Bahrain on March 2nd, Saudi on March 9th. Two weeks later, we're in Australia. And then two weeks after that, we are in Japan. Now, the reason, of course, is that the FIA and the FOM are starting to try and compartmentalize the calendar regionally. Um, Makes but total the reason, sense. 
Totally, totally. The yep. reason it's never been earlier in the season, even though it makes total sense from a weather perspective, is that the race organizers have always fought tooth and nail to keep their keep their September October date. Uh, but it looks like the FIA FOM has won out, and we're finally going to see the Japanese Grand Prix relocate permanently to the front half of the calendar. Awesome, love it, love it. Some uh, stats on the track itself: it's a uh, five point eight one kilometers or three point six one miles. Uh, total race length is. 307.47 kilometers or 191.05 miles 53 laps last year we saw max verstappen on pole max verstappen won the race sergio perez was second charles leclerc uh, was uh, third for ferrari fastest lap last year was set by joe guan yu and the alfa romeo lewis hamilton holds the uh, the track record lap record set that in 2019 that was a 130.938. I'll just pull up uh, some stats here. So the uh, the winningest uh, constructor at uh, at Suzuka is a uh, McLaren. They've won it nine times, but not since uh, 2011. So uh, well overdue for a win there. Ferraris won there seven times. Mercedes won there six times. A dominant run from 2014 to 2019. That was interrupted uh, because of COVID. Red Bulls won there five times. Won their last. Last year, Benetton and Williams won their three times apiece, and then uh, a whole handful of uh, of teams have won there twice, including Lotus, Nissan, March, Renault, and uh, a lot of those go date back to the 60s and the early 70s when this was a non-championship uh, race. So the winningest driver at the Japanese Grand Prix is Michael Schumacher, who won it six times. Lewis has won it five times, and then Sebastian Vettel won it uh, four times, and then uh, a whole heap of drivers have won it there twice including Gerhard Berger, Ayrton Senna, Damon Hill, Mika Hakkinen, and Fernando Alonso, some uh, great drivers uh, in there. So, Mark, this is a tough one to call, right? Because we're, we're expecting Red Bull to be back on form. We expect Max to to lay it down and, and be the one to beat again this weekend. But just because this TD-018 that came into uh, effect last week has kind of really thrown a lot of question marks out there. Are we, are we going to see Ferrari do well? Are we going to see Mercedes do well? Is somebody going to unexpectedly move up uh, through the uh you know through through the pack while some slide back like you discussed uh, and so nicely explained a little earlier in the show so i mean other than saying that i expect max to get back to winning ways this weekend everything else seems to be a bit of a question mark and i would even say that 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 qualifying will give us a good indication because somebody you know, we, we might see something, but, uh, you know, somebody might have had to make changes for their cars and maybe that affects their qualifying trim and not their race trim or vice versa, or maybe it just affects them across the board. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see if there's any notable changes in performances of uh, any of these cars going forward this weekend. Expect uh, hopefully to see more exciting things from uh, McLaren. I don't know if, if Suzuka will be, you know, especially good for the, the, the McLaren and Lando and, and and Oscar Piastri certainly they've been a bright spot over the past uh, two or three months so it'll be a, they'll certainly be one to, to to watch and then just everybody else where do they filter out or is it just going to be kind of more of the same I don't know Mark if you've got anything to add to it I mean it seems like a bit of a lightweight uh, you know prediction but there's there's just a lot of question marks out there at the moment 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny because as much as the championships decided, there's so much interesting stuff happening in the midfield right now. The surge that that McLaren has made since Austria and the fact that Aston Martin, with the exception of that podium finish in Zandvoort, which I think was less about the car and more about the um, extreme talent of one Fernando Alonso, they've kind of fallen back. And now Ferrari is a, a race winner this season that, you know, if you can compartmentalize and if you can box up Red Bull, there's still a lot of really interesting stuff happening on the grid and you know if 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 I had to put money on this race I would still suggest it's going to be Max Verstappen and I think it's going to be a walk but there's a lot of things that we don't know and we don't know if technical directive 18 and 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 39 are going to was it 39 I can't even keep these technical directives straight anymore <laughs> but I know, we don't know, I know if they're going to have an impact on the card if they come out and they tear up this track then I think we can confidently say like look you know what they're clean but maybe there are other teams that are impacted by this. So it'll be fascinating. It'll be interesting to see if if Lance is back. It'll be interesting to see if the rumors about Yuki getting a new deal, which will be announced this weekend, because that is very consequential. Because if Yuki gets a seat, basically it means that one of Liam or Daniel Ricardo won't get a seat this year. So sorry, sorry, for next year. So yeah, obviously just super, super excited and I can't wait to sit down with you on on Sunday and, and talk about this because then we get, I think, a week off, right? We finally get a break. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we look forward to sitting down with you Sunday to talk about the Japanese Grand Prix. Yeah, I'm especially fascinated in uh, you know the, this constructors battle between Mercedes and uh, and Ferrari. There's only 24 points uh, between the two of them. I mean, Lewis and George, for the most part, have been incredibly consistent, bringing home points uh, this year. That's why they they've leapfrogged and 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 really moved up uh, through the constructors, especially since uh, Mercedes uh, decided to go with Plan B and uh, you know uh, you know make some pretty major modifications to the W14 after you know 18 months of struggling with the, the the previous configuration with the, the W13 the original configuration side podless configuration of the W14 this year as well so i mean i i don't think that uh you know, I th- maybe it gets a little bit overlooked or not talked about because everybody talks about Max, everybody talks about Red Bull, everybody's talking about some of the struggles that Sergio had. Now he's been able to more or less sort of kind of get his season back on track. But Mercedes, to me, have kind of quietly moved up uh, through the through the championship through the constructors after having a pretty tough start by their standards uh, to to the season and it'll be interesting to see because like I say 24 points you could easily make that up in a race weekend if Mercedes had a horrible weekend and Ferrari had a good weekend this weekend they could you know theoretically close that gap pretty quick and vice versa if uh, Mercedes have another good weekend Ferrari have a horrible weekend that gap could uh, open up and I know you know for for people who say yeah but you guys are just interested in you know second place in the championship when everything else has already been decided but yeah sure that's uh, that that's fair point but um you know i i still think that there's some pretty cool and pretty interesting storylines to to follow this weekend daily final thing and then i just got a notification of this on my computer from racing news 365 but as a reminder the start times this weekend are a little bit wacky so for you and i the race is actually on saturday at 10 p.m pacific time which is pretty cool and if you're in the central time zones in north america it'll be on at midnight if you're in the eastern time zone so the east coast new york toronto 
to hear I say that Toronto because I sound like anyways, never mind. Only only <laughs> people from Toronto will get that. Um, but Boston, Miami, et cetera, it's at one o'clock. Um, Gulf Standard Time. So in the GCC region, it'll be 9 a.m. And New Zealand time, it'll be 3 p.m. Uh, so interesting. So again, if you're on the West Coast of North America, you can watch this on Saturday. So my question to you are, are you going to watch it Saturday night live? What are the rare opportunities that we have to see a race live? Or are you going to, are you going to, F1 TV Pro it on on Sunday morning. I, I see what you did there. You said Saturday Night Live. Oh, so, yeah. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> that was a little bit of an interesting uh, slip there. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll stay up and watch this one. So I'm going to up the ante. So Hammy, are, are we pulling an all nighter to do the the the, the race for now? I could see the way that your shoulders and you just kind of slump there. So we're doing this thing on Sunday morning. So that that that's fine. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll sleep in. We'll put the bunny slippers on. We'll crawl, climb into the studio. Do it do it on Sunday morning because uh, yeah, to be if, a little bit if late. If something outrageous, and I mean that in a good way, if something something outrageous happens i'm cool to do a midnight recording but it has to be something pretty pretty crazy okay alex albon for the win beats everybody alex albon in the top five i will do a midnight (laughs) recording my friend okay let's let's not lower the bar too much and i you know i don't want to disrespect alex at all it's just like let's 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 get careful before we 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 put too many like parameters in there we end up uh, sitting to do this thing and beat up to like four in the morning (laughs) recording and editing a a podcast but all good anyways guys thank you so much for, for listening to the show mark you have a little announcement that you usually do at the end of the show every week so i'll let you do that if you like what you hear from mr daly and myself if you could head over to spotify and give us a five-star rating and if you listen on the apple ecosystem on your iphone your ipad or your computer if you could head over to apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review we would love it and finally don't forget to rsvp to our november 19th las vegas grand prix watch party here in vancouver British Columbia. All are welcome, and we will be accepting $30 donations that will go to the Canadian Mental Health Association. On behalf of Mary Brown's Chicken and Sony Playstations, I'm signing off for the night. I'll kick it over to you. <laughs> I'll put the big stickers up here in the background of the studio uh, for, for our new unofficial uh, sponsor. So we'll, we'll do that until we get the cease and desist letter from their, from, <laughs> from their lawyers. Anyways, everybody, thank you uh, very much uh, for listening. If you want to get in touch, send us an email, scooterf1pod at gmail.com. Follow us on X, scooterf1pod. And that's a, that's a wrap. Enjoy the race. We'll be back on Sunday to wrap it up. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone. Talk to you later. Bye for now.